that's the, where the rubber hits the road. It's like, oh, we're all in favor of life. But man, lifestyle is so attractive. But sometimes life and lifestyle aren't consistent or there is there can be competition there between them. And uh, we do have to choose. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Sons of Ignatius podcast. My name is Father David Lugo, coming at you from Miami, Florida, for the foreseeable future. And with me, as always, is... Father Nihalihi, coming at you from Dublin, Ireland. Amen. Hey, I think we mentioned this last time, but we will, and I'm saying it definitively, declaratively, in fact, we will record a live episode. What do you mean, we will record a live episode? I mean that you and I will be in the same room very shortly. Oh, God. Oh, Totally. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Tell me more. Like, well, you're just teasing now, Dave. I mean, come on. What's the news? Tell us the news. As we record this episode, we are fast approaching the month of June, and I will be leaving my current assignment in Miami on the very first week of July. So 5th of July. And so on my way, my trek to the peninsula, to Madrid, will probably take me by way of Dublin, which seems like a a direct enough way to get to Madrid. And so, I don't know, we'll see how our calendars align, but it'd be nice to see you at the parish and see that greenhouse you got working. All roads lead to Dublin. All roads lead to Dublin, that's right. And so I'll see you in Dublin, hopefully, at some point in August. This is incredible because lately I had a visit from Julio, one of our former housemates from Toronto, Julio Minsal, who's studying in Rome. Julio was over here for a theology conference. He's a foremost expert, I think, in the Sacred Heart. Isn't that right? Yes, yes, yes. I know. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Funny enough, Sacred Heart Novena, 16th to 24th of June, St. Francis Xavier Parish, Dublin. If anyone's listening from Dublin, tune in on, on the webcam. I'm really looking forward to that. So I had a visit from Julio and also I literally just had lunch with Professor Jill Golding one of our former theology profs. No way. Wow. Blast from the past. Sister Jill is a CJ that's in the Congregation of Jesus, which is an apostolic religious congregation inspired by Mary Ward and, and Ignatius in a way, I suppose. They're, they're quite Ignatian. Jill is good friends with one of the fathers in the community here, Father Dermot Mansfield. So just literally bumped into her there. Had lunch, a very quick lunch, and she sends her very best regards to Father David Lugo. Oh, I got to tell you, man, of all the different places that we travel and all that, I do wonder if, like, people even remember that we were there. <laughs> like, I just, I wonder if, like, oh, I was a blip on that radar for that, like, brief season. And it's like, no, people actually remember us. Well, not, not only does she remember us, but she remembers us fondly. She was fond of our, our little cohort. And that's great. And that's not nothing when it comes to Jesuits. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Those guys are actually okay. Yeah. Those guys are not bad. Those guys yeah. are not bad. Yeah. So just for a little context. So when Niall and I were studying theology together in Toronto, she was she taught us ecclesiology. And she also taught me a class on Hans Urzo and Balthazar. Did you take anything else with her or just that ecclesiology class? Just the ecclesiology class. Yeah. Okay. I sang in the choir with her as well. Okay, good. She's on a sabbatical year. So that's why she's over. Yeah, I find that it's probably easier for you to run into people in Dublin that we know in common than I am in Miami. Then again, you are much more likely to run into Disney characters. Oh, that's true. That's very true. You know, swings and roundabouts. That's right. That's right. That's right. You know, just the way that the universe works. And I'll probably be in Dublin in August and you'll probably be in Miami. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to I'm going to hang tight for you. here. I'm going to welcome and give you a, a royal welcome. Excellent. I want to try some of those tomatoes that you've been making. Yep. Yep. They're coming. They're coming. 
Well, good, buddy. Hey, so let's jump right in. We have been working diligently through some of the themes of Catholic social teaching. And as a general principle for our podcast, I think it's just you and I like talking about these things. Like we enjoy as Jesuits and as priests and as as just guys interested in, you know, all things Catholic and also being very in tune with things of the world. We like talking about general topics. And so we spoke at length a couple of weeks ago on the care for our common home and integral ecology. And last week we spoke very well and I think good conversation around the dignity of work and the importance of work. But today, I think, you know, one of the things that might be important for us to do, and I'm taking this quote just briefly from one of those encyclicals on Catholic social teaching, Centesimus Annus. It's the 100th year anniversary of Rerum Novarum. If you remember, we, we had that first document, Rerum Novarum by Leo Thirteenth, And on the 100th anniversary of that document, John Paul II wrote an encyclical that was after Laborum Exorcens, after that one on work. And in it, he says that human persons are willed by God but that their dignity does not come from the work that they do, but from the persons that they are. So it's just sort of a, a segue from where we were last week. We spoke at length about the importance of work. But one thing that John Paul II wanted to reiterate in that f- subsequent encyclical, which is what we want to talk about today, is that the dignity of the human person doesn't come from what he does, but from who he is. And who he is is someone who's made in the image and likeness of God. So what I want to do today, Niall, with you is just maybe jump into a conversation, which I think is poignant and incredibly relevant, at least in the States right now and across the Western world, about the dignity of human life and all issues pertaining to life from conception to natural death, which is a really wide topic. But it's one of those undergirding foundational Catholic social teaching principles that we should dedicate some time to talk about. Yeah, I'm very happy to talk about this. I mean, life issues, both beginning of life and end of life issues, are very much part of the public discourse here in Ireland at the moment. And I often don't get the chance to speak about them. I find it hard to really preach about it, these issues, because I think they're really issues that need to be discussed. And a homily by its nature is sort of a one way. It's a monologue. It's not a dialogue. And obviously, you know, it is important to preach this pro-life message from the public where possible. But my preference is for dialogue rather than monologue. And that's especially important, I think, in the American context, at least. There's very little dialogue, even outside of the ecclesial circle in the political arena. Dialogue seems to have fallen by the wayside. And we've had some issues in the public square recently with the landmark case Roe versus Wade that is very much in the front of the news again in the United States about abortion. And dialogue is very much not what's happening. There's just a lot of yelling and a lot of crosstalk, but there's not a lot of actually sitting down and discussing these issues with any kind of patience. Yeah. The other restriction I find is that in a secular society or a pluralist society, speaking about these issues from a religious perspective is often downgraded or people might roll their eyes like I say, oh, there's there's the Catholics talking about pro-life issues again. Right. Whereas, no, I really do believe that theology and the faith lens brings something to this discussion. And it's legitimate. And this is the one thing when I did preach on this issue a, a while back from the pulpit, I said, look, it's not a crazy religious idea to say that everybody has a soul or a sort of a sacred sort of viable spiritual element to their personhood. That's not a uniquely Catholic position or belief to have. It's just like, look, we're all spiritual. Like basically you're saying when we die, even though our body begins to decay, there is still a us, a, a me, an I who continues. And that's not, we're not talking about transubstantiation here, folks, or, you know, Jesus' resurrection from the dead or the Immaculate Conception. Like, this is just a very, I would say, almost ubiquitous spiritual religious belief that everybody has a soul. So I don't, I don't think there's anything controversial out there about asserting that. And then, well, okay, if we have a soul, well, everybody has a soul. Well, then how do we live? 
I do think where maybe it comes to a little bit of a tension point is I don't want to be too abstract here, but maybe maybe one of the things that I think is on display with a lot of these debates that maybe pushes it to where, you know, the religious perspective is often relegated is that we're holding in tension in a lot of these issues, the autonomy of individuals over the implicit and invaluable dignity of another. When those two things are coming to odds with each other, that my freedom and my will and then your inherent value, irrespective of any of your qualities, those two things can often come into contact with each other. So like, do I have a right on my own will to take your life? Well, no, we would say no, that you don't have a right to kill someone. But then these issues become a little bit more thorny or maybe ambiguous when you talk about other topics like euthanasia or abortion, or there's other topics that may fit into this aegis, which is questions of slavery, questions of prostitution, how an individual person's body and personhood can come into contact with another person's autonomous will. And so like the question of slavery, is that a pro-life issue? Prostitution, is that a pro-life issue? And I think the way that the church would think about it is that yes, because even though you might want to exercise your will over me and my personhood, my personhood has something to say irrespective of your will. Like your will is good, but your will can't go that far. I think that that may be an intersection point where people have some struggles, especially with the pro-life issue in the, in the States with abortion, is it's always my body, my choice, choice always. The other nuance as well is even if something can be said to be morally wrong, that doesn't mean that the state has the right to prevent me from doing it. So you'd agree, okay, it's morally wrong to have an affair, you know, an extramarital affair. That's not a moral good to be unfaithful to your spouse. But the state does not have the right to coerce me or to prevent me or anyone from doing that. That would be the state overstepping the mark. So there is that position where some people might say, okay, well, personally, I believe that it is wrong for somebody to perform an abortion or it is wrong for a doctor to perform euthanasia. They're wrong, but that doesn't mean that the state has to ensure that it doesn't happen. So there's all, all these arguments. Yeah, although we do have, I mean, we do make laws against, for example, murder. So the state does punish those who murder. That's a moral declaration of that value. It's difficult because I agree with you on some sort of level, like politically, that there's a bit of a libertarian in me where it's like, well, if the state just sort of like backed off and let us just figure this out and let the church speak to moral matters and let parents raise their children, then will it not all come out on, in the wash? And the answer is probably no. Like the probably is that we would probably end up doing all kinds of things that we shouldn't. And maybe the state, I don't know, this is hard. Like this is, this is precisely where the Roe v. Wade issue in the United States has led us is that it's, I don't know if you've heard much in the news in, in Dublin about what happened here with the Supreme Court decisions. And we'll get more into the nuances and into the weeds about the particular topics in a second. But this, this issue is important because it has to do with the common good. And since we're talking about Catholic social teaching, it's not just about like my, like you were saying a few weeks ago, it's not about my personal morality, but that there is a social component to the faith and there's a social component to the common good. What happened in the States here is that Roe versus Wade in the 1970s was a landmark decision from the Supreme Court of the United States to, I don't exactly know the right language here without sounding like an idiot, and so I won't you know, venture into legalese, but basically to legalize abortion across the country, and so to not criminalize abortion, to make it available. And so it became a question around the issue of privacy and a person's freedom of privacy to speak with their doctor about what they wanted to do to end their pregnancy, and that the state couldn't intervene to stop that. And so that was a landmark decision that legalized abortion effectively all across the country. Recently, there was a leaked opinion from the Supreme Court, which is an unprecedented event where you had a majority opinion from one of the Supreme Court justices leaked into the press. 
And so that opinion was intimating and giving suggestion that the court was going to change its opinion on on this matter. And so that caused a huge ruckus in the public square where a lot of people were either celebrating the quote unquote overturning of Roe versus Wade or on the other side, bemoaning or really like raising up the alarm that this is an egregious offense of human rights. And what's interesting, though, and this goes back to what we we're just talking about with what is the role of the state? What's interesting, though, is that Roe versus Wade, it quote unquote getting overturned effectively what it does. It doesn't ban abortion. If you overturn Roe versus Wade, it doesn't ban abortion across the country. What it does is it turns it into a state issue and not a federal issue. And so it becomes an issue kind of, of subsidiarity where an individual state like Texas or Florida or New York or California can decide for its own citizenry what the law will be in that state. And so the law of abortion will be as diverse as there are 50 states across the country. And so it's kind of a question there of like, is that a good step in the right direction of what you're saying, which is that the federal government shouldn't be, you know, overstepping to legislate on moral issues, but allowing local communities to decide what's best. That's one of the, the features of the, the nation state and, and federal nations as well, that the same law tends to be applied across the board, whereas there can be very little scant regard for local regional preferences on these issues, which I think is something of a, a weakness in the modern nation state. Yeah, and it brings in that principle of subsidiarity, which is the person who's closest on the ground to an issue is probably the person who's most suited to address that issue. That the further away you get from the particular issue, the harder it is to probably make an effective decision about that issue, which is, I think, a really good principle from a Catholic perspective on social matters. And it pertains on this issue of, of life just because, well, who, who should be making these choices? Uh, should the federal government that lives in Washington be making this choice for an individual? Yeah, I think the other interesting contribution of Catholic social teaching to the pro-life debate is recognizing that the context in which these decisions are made has radically changed over the last decades and, and even centuries. I think women can rightfully say today, pregnant women, that it is increasingly hard to bring new life into this world. Or let's say it costs a lot more for some women anyway than it did in the past. So for example, if your average teen pregnancy now is more than likely unplanned, maybe called crisis pregnancy, and it is crisis because if a young woman gives birth now, well, then the options before her suddenly become much more limited. So it's going to be much more difficult for her to go to university, to get an education, to pursue a career and to be financially comfortable in life. Like all of a sudden, all of that, your livelihood is in jeopardy, Where, whereas that wasn't the case necessarily in the past, that there was still, let's just say that pregnancy was much more part and parcel of finding one's way through life. And it was obviously, okay, I'm not saying that women in the past went to university or that, but what I'm saying is that one's livelihood now in the West and one's standard of living is greatly affected by if and when you get pregnant. Yeah. And that's legitimate. I mean, that's a legitimate grievance or concern. There is, I think, a lot at stake now for women, much more at stake than the past in terms of if and when they get pregnant. But also, I'd like to say that, well, can we really call a society progressive if when a woman gets pregnant, say, under the age of 25, that all of a sudden her livelihood and our future is somehow in jeopardy because that's the society we've created. And, you know, biology hasn't changed. <laughs> biology hasn't changed at all. Women can, can break pregnant from 
whatever, 16 or I, I don't know, I'm not, <laughs> not a biologist, whatever that number is. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and yet men and women, I would say, are only sort of socially, psychologically, economically, let's say, ready to have a baby and to start a family, maybe from late 20s. So there's a gap, there's a gap there. And I wouldn't automatically say that that shows that we have a particularly progressive society or social structures and cultures when bringing life into the world, say, between the age of 18 and 30 costs so much. Absolutely. And it's an interesting thing for me. So one of the documents that I was reading in preparation for this conversation was one of the encyclicals from that tradition for Catholic social teaching, and it's Evangelium Vitae from John Paul II, which he published in 1995. And in it, he talks a lot about all of these issues about life, everything from abortion, euthanasia to slavery, de deportation, prostitution, a much wider view of questions of life rather than just reducing it all down to contraception and abortion. But one thing that I find interesting is he structures the encyclical in line with a few different scripture passages. And one of them is coming to mind as you're talking about the, the tremendous burden that is bringing children into the world for a woman, perhaps in this context, as it was perhaps as a different thing in the past. In particular, the first chapter of Evangelii Vitae quotes actually Cain and Abel, that story. So the story of Cain and Abel as indicative or iconic for the question about what he calls Evangelium Vitae, the gospel of life, about the good news of life. And in particular, one of the things that he says in that section, in that chapter, is about whether or not it's the question that Cain asks God is if he was his brother's keeper. And the relationship between brothers or people, broadly speaking, in society, how that relational dimension is essential for having a gospel of life. That if we have a gospel of life that we want to proclaim, especially to a woman who may have gotten pregnant at 16 or something like that, and is now having to forfeit all of her ambitions or dreams in the way that she had envisioned them, how is this good news? How is it good news for her that she is going to bring a child in the world if she feels disconnected from her brothers and sisters around her? So I think a really good perspective here from the document that even Pope Francis will echo later in the document we talked about a few weeks ago, Laudato Si, is that... He says in number 117, which I find great, he says, when we fail to acknowledge as part of reality the worth of a person, an embryo, or a person with disabilities, or a poor person, to offer just a few examples, it becomes difficult to hear the cry of nature itself because everything is connected. And so the matrix of relationships that that woman in crisis pregnancy is perhaps lacking makes this topic so much harder now because of the breakdown around her of a network and a society, a village, whatever, that is able to support her in this crisis moment. And so what ends up happening is that the burden is very much often downloaded onto her and onto her conscience. And so then you have the eruption of this crisis where it's now, should I terminate my pregnancy or should I have a future? Which is a false dichotomy, right? But the absence of a society around her where we do care that she is my sister and I'm her keeper, like, I should carry that burden with her. But instead, I'm just yelling at her and throwing rosaries at her in the worst of cases, you know, in the pro-life movement. Or I'm just saying, like, you can do whatever you want, kill the fetus on the extreme left. And so I think that is an important social dimension to what you're saying here is that she's in crisis probably not just because she's pregnant, but because she also feels very alone. Right. So the issue, it's not just a personal moral issue. It's also a social issue. It's like It's not whether it's right or wrong for a woman to procure an abortion. But is it that it's wrong for us all to have created conditions where it's way more tempting and easier for a woman to choose to have an abortion than to choose to bring her baby to full term and to give birth? Yeah, that's right. How could we have allowed these conditions 
to emerge in society where people feel so isolated and alone and unsupported. And again, this is a common theme, Dave, across all the issues we're talking about. Like, how do we solve the environmental crisis? How do we cut our carbon emissions and cultivate biodiversity again? Well, we do it together. There's no way that individuals just by themselves can bring about the necessary change. Community is essential for this to even begin to address the issues. We either do this together or we don't do it at all. The same with how do we defend workers' rights? Well, for a start, workers begin by coming together, you know, in bonds of solidarity, by joining trade unions, etc., and beginning movements. That's how you stand up to the owners of the means of production who want to get as much out of their workers as they can. Well, you start by coming together. Okay, how do you begin to reduce the number of abortions occurring or or euthanasia or slavery or any of these issues? How do you address them when you begin by coming together? And that's it. It's the only way. It's a social issue. That's right. You mentioned euthanasia. Just to go on to that topic for a second, when you and I studied in Canada, it was very much on the forefront of the public discourse. I'm not sure exactly when it was legalized, physician-assisted suicide, or what I think now is called medical assistance in dying in Canada is how they, they call it. But it's a topic that I was very interested in when we were in Canada, just because it gets to the fore of this question of a person's individual freedom and autonomy and will, and the inviolability or the the foundational principle of dignity of human life, even my own life, and that I don't have a right to even take my own life. And I think the question of a social environment, an environment in which that person belongs, I think it may also be something that points the euthanasia topic very much to its extreme, is that how do we treat the elderly? How do we treat the sick and the marginalized? There's something to be said about why is a person feeling like their illness is such a burden to themselves or to others or so intolerable that termination of life is the only option. Well, I wonder where is that person's children? Where are their friends? Where are their grandchildren to celebrate with them their life while it's still here? And I wonder if the issue of euthanasia is an issue that is maybe cultivating or festering a little bit in the isolation that at least in the West, there seems to be in the United States, I find there's an epidemic of, well, just send grandma to a home because we work all day and we can't be bothered. Of course, no one says it that way, but that's effectively what we do. Or it's just not practical. It's not that we can't be bothered. It's just literally there aren't enough hours in the day to do this. Yeah, you know? that's right. That's right. And so the structural breakdown around the individual person, because like what we're driving at, just to take a step back, is that the individual person has dignity, but that dignity requires it to have an ecosystem. And without the ecosystem around the individual, then that dignity really struggles to blossom and to flourish. And it becomes very tempting then for that individual to just be seen as either disposable or as not as important, perhaps, as the collective. And so with the absence of that ecosystem around the individual person, maybe a lot of these issues are born out of that. What drives a woman to prostitution? What drives a society to deport other people? It's like, well, there's no real belief of a social network that we belong to the same family. It's something I'm conscious of being a priest in a, in a city center parish, that there are a lot of people who come in the doors to worship the same God, but they don't necessarily know each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so, so they're living in the same area, uh, they're from the same geographical locality, but they don't really know each other. Right Now, some do, don't get me wrong, there is some community, but it's the nature of a city centre of urban areas that there's a lot of transients in the area, people coming and going. Then I compare that to 
my parents' parish at home where they know everyone. So it's a smaller village. And yes, there's a good parish community. The, the community of believers is strong there and there's great faith. But even those who don't go to church still know each other. Yeah, There is a, a natural community there as well in the village and the local area. And one thing I'm conscious of here in the parish is that even though we are in a way forming a community of believers or a religious community that doesn't take the place of and can never do the job of just having an ordinary natural social community like like a a sense of neighborhood and neighborliness even if you worship the same god that doesn't mean that you're sort of there for each other when you need something or in time of crisis Mm -hmm. and I'm starting to, as well as nourishing and cultivating faith, hope and love here, like try, obviously trying to do that. The more I go on, I'm kind of thinking, you know, we really need to be, if we could foster just neighborliness yeah. here, that would be a bulwark against so many ills and and evils that are, that are kind of prowling around, mm-hmm. uh, crime, drug use, all sorts of things. If we could just create, a, foster a little bit more neighborliness and community, yeah. that that would have a huge effect on this area. Yeah, yeah. There's an echo there in that document, Evangelium Vitae. The last chapter, just skipping to the very end of the, of the document, the last chapter is about the corporal and the corporal works of mercy, where Jesus speaks about what you did to me. And so giving food to the hungry, giving clothes to the naked, drink to the thirsty, visiting the imprisoned, tending to the sick. You did that to me when you did it to one of the least. And so I just think about that in terms of what you're describing here is I'm also at a downtown parish. And so if we all come to this place to worship Christ, Jesus Christ as our God and Lord. But then we leave and on the street, there's a disregard for our neighbor and there's a disregard for the person who's hungry on the street. Then what does that say about the faith that we're actually proclaiming if we're so disconnected from each other? You know, is that my relationship to God is not just vertical, but it's very much horizontal. And if I believe in a gospel of life, then that life is not just an individual, like it's not just a connection that I have, a direct connection to God as opposed to a connection that I have with my brothers and sisters. And so if I if I cut that relationship with my brothers and sisters and don't really care for them in their need, their nakedness, their sickness, and their vulnerability in the womb, in the unjust treatment of the imprisoned, whatever it may be, as an issue of life and the protection and the preservation of life, if I have no care about that, then what does that say about my relationship with God vertically? Like that horizontal dimension is not just incidental. But the cultivation of that kind of friendly neighborliness is not just niceties. It's not just like, how nice would it be? It's like, wait a minute, there's a kind of hypocrisy in our proclamations of a gospel of life. If I just see this as like, God, I pray for an end to abortion. But this poor woman who's on the street, who's pregnant and just got here from another country. Do I even know her? Do I even look at her? Do I even support her? Am I willing to walk with her? Because if your faith in him is not immediately connected to your care for her, well, then what is Jesus says? Like, you don't know me. You know what I mean? Yeah, like this is, I think, one of the real jumps or let's say awakenings that I think Christians undergo. A lot of people sort of have faith in a God above somewhere up there. But it's really hard to understand and to accept that Christ has so united himself with his followers and with humanity that whatever is done unto the least of people is done unto me, as he says. when. I was teaching this in secondary school a few years ago and I wanted to just introduce this concept of the body of Christ. 
So I said, like, they were talking about 17, 18-year-old guys here, smart fellas in, in our Jesuit boarding school, Clongo's half an hour outside Dublin. And I gave him that text from the Acts of the Apostles where the risen Jesus says to Saul of Tarsus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said to the guys, OK, say you're Saul's lawyer yeah. and you're trying to mount a defence against this accusation. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What would your defence be? And the answer is sort of like, well, how could I be persecuting you? I don't even know you. Like, what's, <laughs> you know, you're a bit of a revelation here, Lord, to be honest. This is the first time I've had, I've had an encounter mm. with you. So how could I be persecuting you? And, but that is, <laughs> so, and it's a, and it's a legitimate defense. But this is what the risen Jesus is telling us. This does come as news to us, but Jesus has united himself to the least of our brothers and sisters, to all people. And what we do unto others, we do unto him. That's one of the articles of our faith. And it's it's radically different. It's much more it's a much more imminent yeah. God than the transcendent God who's who's up in heaven. Sure, sure. I guess, you know, just going back to the other two chapters, briefly just to mention them from Evangelii Vitae that I, I think are important to mention that are other scripture passages. We mentioned that I am my brother's keeper, which relates to what you were just talking about, of knowing my brother as the one who suffers and knowing that my brother is the one in his need that I have to tend to. And then the religious dimension of that, of course, is that if I really don't want to be a hypocrite in my faith as a Christian, I have to realize that the Christ I proclaim is precisely found in my brother who needs. The other thing I just want to mention that is an important maybe detail here is that I very much underlined this when I was reading the document that is important to me to emphasize is that the title of this document is the gospel of life. And I think that's an important word, gospel, because I don't often find when preachers or people in the pro-life movement, whatever it may be, do we really talk about this as good news? Or do we talk about it in a very dire tone, which is okay if there's good news and you want to speak direly about it. But there's just a wonder here about, are we inviting our culture to understanding that, like the reason that we care for the unborn is not because we hate women. The reason that we care about not promoting euthanasia is not because we hate your freedom. But that there's good news here, that there's something on offer because one of the chapters, the, the second full chapter of the encyclical is quoting John chapter 10, is that I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. That Jesus desires that new and eternal life in abundance for us. And so all of these issues that really try to strip away at the person's experience of a fullness of life, whether it be in the womb or at the end of life, this is good news that Jesus is bringing, that life is a good value in and of itself with its own basic fundamental dignity. And that's good news. And I just wonder if that affects the way in which we preach or not, because I don't find that many of us do preach as if there's were good news that we want to share. Rather, it's wagging our finger at people who are doing the wrong things. Yeah. So an elderly man who comes to the, the church here regularly asked me to give a blessing to his grandson recently. And the grandson was, he was about 10 or 11 years old. I said, would you, would you like a blessing? And he said, well, what's a blessing? I said, well, I'll ask God to, to give you gifts and good things. And he said, like a PlayStation 4. <laughs> no, no, not maybe. maybe <laughs> PlayStation 4, but not necessarily. You know, I was really searching for words. I God, how do I explain this? And I said, well, everything you need in order to live and to love. That's, that's what God's grace is. And he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'll take that. But yeah, yeah, that's well, not. Oh, if I can't get a PlayStation Four, well, I guess some, you know, some God's grace would be good. I guess as a as a um, consolation prize. But it, it sort of brought home the point to me that Jesus, God, is offering life, life itself, vitality. But our culture is oriented towards probably lifestyle more than life itself. 
And that's something I've tuned into with the ecological crisis is that we find it hard to choose life when that involves sacrificing lifestyle. Mm. That's the nub of it, I think. Like, that's what we're all struggling with. I struggle with that. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not an ecological saint by any matter of means. But I'm, I'm tuning into it. Maybe that's really the, the nub of it. You know, that's the, where the rubber hits the road. It's like, oh, we're all in favor of life. Mm. But man, lifestyle is so attractive. But sometimes yeah. life and lifestyle aren't consistent or there is there can be competition there between them and uh, we do have to choose yeah anyway that's where i'm at with that at the moment yeah i had never heard that distinction before i appreciate it and i wonder how would you apply that to the abortion question for example well i would say again i go back to my my first point it's communities who decide to allow life in or not it's not just about the pregnant woman deciding what kind of lifestyle she wants and whether that's compatible with being pregnant it's about the father extended family, neighbors saying, okay, if this woman's, say, earning power is reduced, can we all step in and provide for her during her time of pregnancy or the early years of child rearing? Can we provide so that she can, so that sort of life and human life and you know, a decent lifestyle can, can go together? Right. That's when, if it's just ourselves relying on our own resources, Okay, like there's a straight trade-off between bringing new life and then sacrificing your, your level of personal lifestyle. But mm -hmm. if the community comes together, well, then you can have new life and, and a decent lifestyle as well. Sure. You know, it's solidarity and community which makes that possible. Yeah, and the village around you adapts its lifestyle to welcome that new life. I guess I was also thinking about it from before the pregnancy, though, just to throw in this controversial topic that Evangelii Vitae does talk about is contraception and premarital sex and, and those kinds of relationships. At, at least for John Paul II and the Magisterium on these topics, those obtain onto the question of the gospel of life. And I wonder if lifestyle, the promiscuity lifestyle or hookup culture that is very prominent within the West, I wonder if that lifestyle necessarily then starts to imply questions about the preservation and the dignity of human life, because human life is conceived within a certain lifestyle that is conducive to promiscuity. And so is there a way there then that our lifestyle needs to adapt and change and do evangelize that lifestyle and say that that lifestyle, the promiscuous lifestyle, is maybe opening Pandora's box to introduce a lot of these life questions that otherwise wouldn't be there if we practiced abstinence, for example? Yeah, I mean, if chastity was understood as a good thing and something which promotes faithful and fruitful relationships, well, then, I mean, that would obviously lead to a, a reduction in abortions. But again, I mean, Dave, like the, the, like the thing is, like it, I think it comes down to this gap between biological readiness for having an active sex life and the sociological and economic and psychological readiness, which is more and more late 20s and, yeah. and early 30s and that gap it widens yeah i mean i think it's now chastity is a virtue i think people who wait until marriage or even let's say wait for that one person even you know who they hope even if they're not married who they hope to spend the rest of their lives with i think that's more and more like heroic virtue hmm. because that gap is getting longer and longer yeah uh, wider and wider so again it's a completely different proposition now waiting until marriage now compared to waiting until marriage 50 100 years ago right it wasn't that big of an ask back then because well look chances are i'm going to be married before i'm 25 so yeah yeah whereas now it's like whoa <laughs> you can add another 10 years onto that exactly 
so again, waiting for marriage, having one lifelong partner, sex partner, we might still say, oh, well, yeah, that would be a good thing. That would be a nice thing. But we have created a society and a pattern of living where that's less and less likely. Sure. And again, I'd be asking the question, okay, I'm not pointing the finger at anyone, but is that really then a progressive society where it's practically impossible for a lot of people to do that? Yeah or to aspire to that. I'm not pointing the finger at individuals. I'm pointing the finger at us. Yeah, that's right. Is that the kind of society we want? Yeah. Maybe we shouldn't be congratulating ourselves so much if it's if it's actually really, really hard to do that. In marriage prep here at the parish, it's one of the things I've grown to really enjoy is having conversations with couples before they get married. And in those conversations, that, that can sometimes span over the course of six months, talking about different facets of married life and different aspects of their conjugal love and their rearing of children and their spending life together and sharing in their vocation to holiness together. One thing I find very interesting is that the majority of the couples that we marry here are pretty worldly couples, maybe one foot in the church, one foot in the world, firmly planted. And many of them, frankly, are living together and sleeping together. And it's one of the conversations that I have with them about what's going to change on your wedding day. On the, the day after your wedding, what will change? You're living together, you're sleeping together now. You know, what's the difference on that day? So we have conversations around what marriage is and what they hope marriage to be for them and all that. But what's interesting, though, is that a lot of these couples get engaged and they stay engaged for months, years sometimes. And it's like it becomes very difficult for you, kind of to your point, to remain chaste in preparation for your wedding day, the longer you're engaged, <laughs> like, have, like have a shorter engagement. If you really want to like save yourself from marriage, the longer you keep waiting, the harder absolutely it's going to be. But your point is well taken is that many of these people are in their early 30s, mid 30s, and they're now finally getting their lives in order to where they can even stably get married at all. And so asking them to wait until marriage is a much higher calling. It's a much harder task than it was for our parents or grandparents' generation. My grandparents, I don't know how old they were, but you hear stories of people who are our grandparents' generation who are married when they were 17 or 18, like three years after she started being able to bear children. Yeah. Back then as well, education didn't necessarily require four or five years at university. There were still smart people, very intelligent people making huge contributions to society. And I guess my sort of social, socioeconomic critique of the world at the moment, and, and again, I've, I've come to this through the eco lens, is that in some way, our social say pathways and structures are out of sync with ecology and biology. There are big tensions now between how we make our way through life and just the natural rhythms of the planet and of our bodies. And, and something has to give. That's right something will give i would say well you know if we're looking for an integral approach to life could we try and bring those things a little bit closer together because that is what will support a genuine culture of life yeah cool man well hey i appreciate this conversation and i think next episode will be our last one for this arc of catholic social teaching so maybe we'll take a minute just to review what we've done and also maybe some takeaways for our life of ministry and priesthood and yeah, and I think then we mentioned this last week, but we'll maybe take a little bit of a pause for a couple of months while I get situated in Europe <laughs> and you enjoy some summer gardening. Yeah, just a little update on the garden. The strawberries are beginning to fruit. We have some nice strawberries emerging, but the real runaway leaders of the pack are the potatoes. The potatoes are just like hopping out of the ground. How appropriate for Ireland as well. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going to avoid making an Irish joke here about potatoes, <laughs> which I don't know any. I just know that there's some there's something to be said there. I don't really know any jokes. OK, let's leave it. Let's leave it. Let's leave it. All right, buddy. Sounds good, man. Till next time, then. Thanks for the chat, Dave. See you. God bless. Bye.